it'd be really helpful to have your Bibles open. So as we continue in our series in 1 Corinthians, we're up to week 14. So if you have your Bibles open, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, you have a Bible up ready, Bible ready, there's also an outline on the back of the news. But as we come to God's Word, let's ask for God's help. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your goodness, your mercy, and we especially thank you that we can not just know about you, but to know you. So please, today, as we open up your word, be at work in the power of your spirit, that we might hear, that we might understand, and that we might obey all that you have to say to us. Lord, may the good news of Jesus take firm root in our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All throughout the letter to the Corinthians, as we've witnessed the church unfiltered, Paul has been addressing problem after problem after problem in the life of the Corinthian church. Issues in leadership, division between believers, competitiveness about gifts, unchecked sexual immorality, drunkenness at the Lord's Supper, and disorder as they gather as God's people. Yet, as we arrive in these final chapters of the letter, instead of winding down, Paul is actually building up to the most significant issue of all. He's saved, in a way, not the best for last, but the worst for last, as they're confused about the historical resurrection of Jesus and the future resurrection of the dead. And indeed, that's still very common today. See, some of the Corinthians they think that there will be no bodily resurrection, that it will be some sort of spiritual reality. Whilst other Corinthians think that actually the final resurrection, that it's already occurred, that the final end has arrived and they've already made it. But as we'll see, Paul says, no. Jesus has indeed been raised physically and when he returns, the dead will be physically raised too. So there is a now and a not yet. It is a phenomenal claim. Uh, The resurrection era has begun, but it will not be made complete until the Lord Jesus returns. That's the claim. So let's have a look. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. So this isn't new news. He's reminding them of something that they should already know because he told them about five years ago. So the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Now, Paul's going to immediately unpack what he means by the gospel, but right at the heart of it is understanding the true nature and implication of Jesus' resurrection that it would take a grip on our lives and remap everything. No, Paul isn't reminding them of some sort of concept to believe in, but something that has happened in history. And it's an event to which we anchor our lives to. News that was preached, news which was received, news by which they are saved, news to be held firm. The resurrection is not an optional extra. Without it, everything is in vain, Paul says. But with it, 
our lives have a purpose and our future is secured. Now, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm so delighted that you're here. You might come along with all sorts of objections to Christianity. And as you ask those questions, you can start in all sorts of places. But here's the thing. Start with the resurrection. Because if it didn't happen, then none of the other questions matter. But if it did happen, then the resurrection of Jesus isn't just an event in history, but it is the event which should shape and map every aspect of your life. It is the event which shapes and maps the future of everything. So we'll look at this chapter over two weeks, but first up we see the certainty, the centrality, and consequence of Jesus' resurrection. So first, the certainty of Jesus' resurrection. Would you look with me? So chapter 15, verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Kephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Now, when Paul used that phrase, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, he's saying that this is critical news. It's really important news that I've passed on to you. I'm not the author of it. It didn't originate with me, but I've passed it on in the very condition that I received it in, with the expectation that you would pass it on in the same condition without change. The language that Paul uses here is actually an ancient technical way of saying that this is what he's doing. Uh, it's a bit like in modern writing, when you quote another source, you might indicate that with a reference. And what's really amazing is that we can have an extraordinary confidence that this is like an early creed. Uh, it's been preserved for us, those words in verses 4 to 8, that phrase, that it has long existed before Paul even wrote the letter. In fact, that phrase can be dated as early as 18 months within, within the uh, time since Jesus' death, and that's by James Dunn, one of the most significant scholars in the area, but certainly no later than five years after Jesus' death. And so either way, we can be certain that this idea wasn't Paul's invention, but was what the very first Christians reported to be true. That's the method of transmission that Paul is referring to. It's very early. But the substance of what Paul passes on is even more extraordinary. It's the gospel in a nutshell. So we see fourfold, four aspects. So that Christ died for our sins, just as the Scriptures, so what we know is the Old Testament, so just as the Scriptures foresaw that God's King would come and die as a sacrifice to redeem the world, that Christ was buried, that He really was dead, that Christ was raised, that He physically rose from the dead, that He didn't die again, and that He is permanently alive, and then that Christ appeared. So it's the ABCD of the gospel, that the Christ died for our sins, was buried, was raised, and Christ appeared. And of course, he appeared not just once, but to scores of people on many occasions over a period of 40 days. 
So to Kephas, that's Peter, to the other disciples, to over 500 people at one time. And not only is this list not exhaustive, for we read of other witnesses in the Gospels, such as the women who were the very first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, but Paul implies that you can ask around and fact-check him if you like, you can fact-check him on this if you like, because whilst a few of the people have died, that's what he means when he says they've fallen asleep, most are still alive. Now, of course, we can't go to those witnesses. It's 2,000 years on. But the accounts of many of the witnesses, well, they've been faithfully preserved for us in the New Testament. But Paul continues saying, in effect, and if you want a more personal example of the reality of this event, then you need not look further than him. So verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, that phrase, abnormally born, could mean a whole bunch of things, but most likely, Paul is just saying that out of all the people who are most unlikely to become a follower of Jesus and claim that Jesus is alive, it is him. Why? Because prior to his encounter with the risen Lord Jesus, he went out of his way. He made it his life's mission to actively persecute the Christian church. He's saying, look, you might be a sceptic, but believe me, there was no bigger sceptic than me. I didn't just not believe the good news about Jesus, I persecuted those who proclaimed it. But not anymore. Hear what Paul is saying. The gospel is about facts. The gospel is not just a spiritual way of life. The gospel is not a religious rule to obey. The gospel is not a political agenda to adapt. The gospel is not a concept to be enlightened with. The gospel is news about an event for which you can be certain that changes everything for everyone and if you let it, will reach down and take a grip on your life and your eternity. Just like it did for Paul. Second, the centrality of Jesus' resurrection. So verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So Paul's probably addressing those in Corinth who have weirdly taken on the Greco-Roman idea of the time that the soul is entrapped in the body and, and that our future is not a bodily resurrection, but that there's just some sort of immortality of the soul. In fact, it's kind of sad that that's actually a lot of what modern Christianity has taught as well. It's sort of the disnification of the afterlife, that we won't have bodies, but we become a star or something like that. Uh, but no, that is not the claim of Christianity. The claim of Christianity is physical, bodily resurrection. That's what awaits us. Because, of course, that's exactly what happened to Jesus. And so Paul used the logic, if we won't rise, he must not have. Paul's saying that so our resurrection is so expected to be the outcome of Jesus's, that if we don't rise, then that would be the evidence that would mean that Jesus was never raised. Those who uh, don't believe that the dead will be raised aren't just tinkering around the edges of the gospel. 
but they have totally misunderstood what Paul has said and what the gospel claims. If there's no resurrection of the dead, it means, which have a look with me, verse 14, our preaching is useless as is our faith. Verse 15, we are false witnesses about God. Verse 17, your faith is futile as you are still in your sins. Verse 18, believers who have died are lost. And verse 19, we are to be more pitied than anyone else. Because the wages of sin is death, Jesus' resurrection is the evidence that the price has been truly paid. Those receiving the letter, or many who have received receiving the letter, they would have said, oh no, we, we definitely believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So Paul is saying, therefore you must also believe that those in Christ will be raised. For Jesus' resurrection and ours are utterly linked. You cannot tear them apart. It's why later on in verse 29 he says, if there's no resurrection, well, why do people baptise for the dead? Now, we're not sure if this practice emerged because some believers died suddenly before they could be baptised, perhaps even due to famine or to plague. But Paul is not endorsing or prescribing the practice of baptism on behalf of those who've died. But he's saying, if you don't think there's any resurrection, why would you bother with this practice? There would be no point. It's why he also questions later, having said he faces death every day, he says, why would he put his life in danger, even fighting wild beasts, whatever that means, we're not entirely sure what he means by that, but why would he put his life in danger? What would he possibly gain if the dead will not be raised? No, as surely as Jesus rose from the dead, so too will all who trust in him be raised forever. That's what the reference to the first fruits is all about. Verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all we made alive. Now, I'm really not much of a gardener, and I'm certainly no farmer. But here's what I know. When you look out at the crop and you see the first apple of the season, it's a sign, it's a guarantee of the type of fruit that follows. You don't get an apple from the tree and think, I wonder if we'll get oranges next. Hear the news. If you want to see what your future looks like, look at Jesus. Alive, eating with friends, having a real body yet will not die again. How on earth could that be possible? Because the one from heaven came to us. Verse 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Just as death comes through Adam as a result of sin... Life forever comes through Jesus as a result of the forgiveness that he has won. So comprehensive was Jesus' victory on the cross and in his resurrection that because the full price for sin was paid for, its consequence, death has been defeated for all who trust in him. 
Paul says at that time, the consequence of Jesus' resurrection, well, has not come in full yet. So verse 23. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Um, so to those who thought that the resurrection had come already, it seems in Corinth some believe that, that what they had uh, really is what we would call an over-realized eschatology. They had conflated Jesus' resurrection and his return. And Paul says, not yet, but each in turn. Whilst Christ defeated sin and death in his death and resurrection, death will not be destroyed until the end. That is the day that the Lord Jesus returns. The image that Paul is using is actually like the sudden and grand appearance of, of an emperor. That will be the day. And this won't be any emperor. It'll be the Lord Jesus himself, who will reign comprehensively over everything forever, sharing that reign with his people. It's on that day when all the powers of evil, of sin and death, they'll be finally dealt with. No more sin, no more pain, no more death. The, del, the bell has been rung. The era has begun. But death will not be dealt its final blow until the day that the Lord Jesus returns. Paul says, how you understand the resurrection changes everything. If, if you don't think that Jesus' resurrection was real, or if you don't accept that physical resurrection awaits, well, it means that death is still in charge. Paul says, if you think that way, if that's the track you're on, then you may as well, picking up verse 32, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I read an article recently that kind of promoted that view, and the too-long-didn't-read version was said, look, your body isn't going to last forever. You really can't do much about it. Nothing awaits afterwards. So you may as well just do whatever you want to do today. If we're just on a trajectory from life to death, then possess it now, consume it now, indulge today, for tomorrow we die. But the Gospel says that when you hold firm to the good news of Jesus... Your life, your life becomes connected to both the past event of his resurrection and also the future promise of his return. So your trajectory is no longer from life to death, but we can have a confidence that it'll be from death to life. The second law of thermodynamics, of entropy, is based on the observation that everything in our entire universe is in decay. Everything is moving from order to disorder. Even look at the sun. The, the sun has enough fuel in it for a few billion years. But it's not going to last forever. But the news of the resurrection changes everything as we await new creation. That, that movement of our universe to disorder since Adam, it's no longer the case. 
Because Jesus' death and resurrection were like a shockwave throughout the entire universe that sets the trajectory back to order and it will be fulfilled when Jesus returns. We're not there yet. That's plain to see. But the fruit is on the tree. The resurrection era has begun and we live in the time between the now and the not yet. It means that every time the gospel is proclaimed and received today, the bondage of sin and death is broken. We're reaching forward. It's great anticipation when Jesus returns that the dead will be raised. New creation will be born. It means death is no longer in charge. That we can face all sorts of trials and challenges and pain. We might not be fighting wild beasts in Ephesus like Paul but we can face the battle, enduring hardship for the sake of the gospel because we're confident about how the story ends. That there will be a day when every tear will be wiped away. It means how we care for God's creation matters. It means what we do with our bodies matters. It means living obediently in a way that reflects that Jesus reigns today and that there is a future that is guaranteed to come. The resurrection changes everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that it is only because of your goodness and mercy through Jesus, through his death and resurrection, that we can have a certain hope. Lord, please help us to understand the gospel in a truthful way in a way that reflects your desires and your agendas and your word. We pray, Father, that we would increasingly see the reality of the future that awaits us, that we would so firmly anchor our lives to Jesus' resurrection and live obediently in great anticipation of his return. Lord, help us to proclaim this good news and delight in it as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.